action. Welcome to Torn Stumps, the trash movie podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk. And Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We're concluding our look at Quentin Tarantino's filmography by taking a look at his brand new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Joshua. It's 1969 and Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, is on the wrong side of his fame. He has let it slide since his Bounty Law TV series in the early 60s. He's trying to reclaim his glory days. Meanwhile, he has a stunt double slash best friend slash driver, Cliff Booth, played by Brad Pitt, who uh, is also meandering around Hollywood trying to find his place. Um, and also it just so happens that uh, Rick lives next door to an up-and-coming actress called Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, um, and their lives kind of collide-ish in a, a kind of a, a 1960s look at the golden age of Hollywood. Robert, <laughs> how did you feel about the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino? This is a completely different beast. His films are so rooted in the 1970s, Everything from Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown especially, Kill Bill, Death Proof. Death, Proof, Death yeah. Proof was made as if it was an original 70s piece of cinema. Yeah. Everything is so rooted in the 70s. This film is set one year before the 70s starts. So of course it's going to feel completely different. It's got the same low-key, quiet tone that I would say is the closest thing he's done to Jackie Brown since Jackie Brown. Yeah, I think it's it's most like Jackie Brown. And even though Tarantino has said that he feels that Once Upon a Time dot 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 in Hollywood is um, closest to Pulp Fiction for him, which is a, quite a claim. Maybe it's just him trying to draw in that crowd that maybe he's lost with films like Death Proof and Hateful Eight. But I think you're right. This this film most resembles Jackie Brown in tone and uh, feel. But I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Jackie Brown. No, I, I I really don't. Jackie Brown had, of all his films, probably the most solid and focused narrative. Yeah, This is very narrative-free. Not in the sense that it's meandering and abstract like something like Inland Empire or uh, Mulholland Drive, mm -hmm. but it's very much a mood piece. It's not a case of saying... This character has a mission. This is going to get carried out. It all comes to a head in the third act and they all go home for sandwiches. Yeah. It is very much a mood piece and probably a love letter to that era of film and television that Quentin Tarantino grew up on in his early formative years. Yeah. Well, the phrase love letter keeps being thrown up with this film. And I, I mean the term, I mean to say thrown up. <laughs> People just keep saying, and it's almost like an, a, an excuse or an apology for the film's lack of narrative drive. Um, people, are, you know, people are saying, oh, it's a love letter to, to the 60s, the golden era. Um, and I kind of, my feeling about that is, if it's a love letter to that era, why does it feel so masturbatory? If a, you know, a love letter is about pouring out your feelings towards something, how much you love that thing. But this doesn't feel 
like Tarantino saying, I love that thing. It almost feels like Tarantino saying, look at that thing that was great. I'm going to do it as well. And I'm going to do it really well. It's not outward looking. It's inward looking completely. Elaborate. What? I don't know what you All mean by that. He, he clearly loves. He does. Because this is the first time I think that he's ever concentrated more on television than the movies. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. So he's clearly grown up on the kind of crap that my dad watches on <laughs> Saturday afternoons. You know, like ITV black and white stuff. Yeah, or um, whatever the, the dad channels are on, yeah. on cable or Sky Television or Virgin Media. Other sources are available. <laughs> so he's clearly loving all that stuff. And that's clearly what he grew up on. And that's what this film is more about. So I don't, I, I don't understand what you mean by saying it's just masturbatory as opposed to loving it because he clearly loves it he does but that passion doesn't i just didn't feel that passion all i saw was him recreating scenes from like fbi the tv show and plonking leonardo dicaprio in them oh i see and they're long and drawn out and they're they're like they are typical tarantino indulgence and i feel like by the ninth film by Tarantino you're either kind of on board the indulgent train or you're not um and that's fine um but for me I just the film I didn't warm to it 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 is it's kind of a sweet film with some some lovely ideas in it but I just I missed traditional Hollywood things like a character arc and a narrative and like it the film keeps teasing the the sense that it's about to start mm. um so when when uh, rick has that meeting with al pacino where al pacino points out that rick is is in danger of becoming almost obsolete and he should go to italy and make the yeah. italian italian Westerns. films mm. yeah that's that's like all oh, right so this is like the mission that's been set up and then are they going to go on this mission no, they're not. It, not for two hours. No. and Well, yeah, exactly. It, there's all these little moments that seem to be seeding the beginning of a story and then no story actually happens. Um, but did, did you really enjoy it then? I, I really enjoyed the first hour because I think the first hour is, is quite tight. Um, I became very acutely aware that it's not a narrative piece. So I kind of made peace with that and just went with what I was being shown. The love letter or the wanking aspect for that period um, the characters, which are in Tarantino fashion, not necessarily fully formed, but they are more than tropes. So there's enough of something there that you can either identify with or uh, you know latch onto. But I think the first half of this film is hilarious. <laughs> I think, like Django, the first half of that film, first hour, is is hilarious. There's some brilliant, brilliant comedic scenes the fight scene with bruce lee Mm -hmm. the stuff with the kid that little girl yeah uh the tv show interview opening was hilarious Mm -hmm. um slightly spoiled by all the trailers which also started with that pretty much the entire interview yeah slightly spoiled in in that respect but that's that's studio marketing and we can come on to the the marketing because i think marketing is the marketing to this film has been quite unique Mm. in in if you're looking at the whole of Tarantino's um, uh, back catalogue of marketing. But in terms of enjoying this film, yes, I enjoyed the first half. The second hour was the one where it began to feel a bit Quentin Tarantino-y mm. in the worst 
possible sense right. in the leaning towards death proof or hateful aid. And then the obviously the ending, which we can come on to a bit later, was we obviously are, we pure. We are going to spoil the film. Yes. Well, I, I imagine if anyone's heard, you know, listening to this, they've seen the film. But the ending is the most Quentin Tarantino it got. Yes. So I feel he's quite neutered in this film. Has he purposely chosen a different style because of the late 60s, pre-1970s setting? So he knows that it probably wouldn't make much of a sense to make a 60s film in a 70s style. Um, Is it because he's not with Harvey? He had to walk away from Harvey Weinstein, make a film with Sony. And has he had to concede to certain things in order to make this film? There's no N-word. There's no N-word. There's no N-word, which is a first for him because he loves that word. Yeah. That's his favourite word. There are no black characters in this film. Or very little. Yeah. You know, the only sort of diverse character we have is Bruce Lee and he is problematic. Is he? Um, well, I mean, it's part of the the supposed backlash against. Oh, the, the controversy, film. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. It did. It does feel very different. It feels. Um, it does feel muted, and it feels very restrained. But I. F- it feels conventional. Yeah, which well, is strange because he's so not conventional. Yeah, it doesn't have the the big razzmatazz of. No, Tarantino. that's the thing. And stylistically, it's. You know, visually, there's 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 nothing there that I'm I'm thinking of any visual mm. that either stands out on its own or is comparable and um, you know can stand on on the same. You know, at the end, of, you know, in, in Olympics, they you know whoever wins gold, silver, you know, none of the visuals here can stand on that gold platform mm. with anything from Kill Bill, Inglorious Bastards, Django no. Unchained, Pulp Fiction. The only... Even Death Proof is yeah. incredibly visual. And there are things in that film that I think would look great framed and put on the wall. Yeah. The only thing, the only visual that I really remember from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is there's a really fantastic crane shot. There's quite a few great crane shots actually in the film, but there's one specifically where Rick is floating on his pool in the evening. He's trying to learn his lines while getting absolutely wasted on whiskey. And the, the camera rises up above the pool, above his house, and then pans across to, is it Sharon Tate's house? Oh, it, it or? pans down. Yeah. I yeah. don't think that's a crane shot. I saw that in the trailer and I thought, that looks like some of the worst CGI stitching I've ever seen. Oh, really? It looks really janky. Oh, I didn't I didn't think that at all. I thought it was beautiful. Oh, I d- maybe they've tidied it up yeah. since the trailer, but I just thought it looked so janky. And I oh. thought, that's a shame because he's never been one to overly use cgi no that is odd maybe he just couldn't accomplish it in time yeah because it's a big maybe it was fine for the can release (laughs) yeah maybe yeah i don't it's the whole thing with this film is it's supposedly a fairy tale like it's called once upon a time yeah but we don't know that till the end in a weird way yeah like the the ending has that twinkly music and Mm. the title comes up is it the first time that his title has come up at the end of the film? I think so. Because at the start, you just get a Quentin Tarantino film. You don't get any of that the yeah. ninth film from yeah, Quentin. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if it actually works. Does it work as a fairy tale? Because I was trying to think about the, the, the um, structure of a fairy tale. 
and you have the villain, you have the hero, and you have the maiden. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though we have those three things in this film, like Charles Manson briefly appears. Barely. Like, you could barely see him as, like, the Wicked Witch kind of figure who comes yeah. along and curses this neighbourhood. Ah, that's um, the only visual I can think of. Oh, his head popping around the side. Yeah, yeah, and they sort of yeah. pull focus a little. Yeah, and it is creepy. You've got Rick, who clearly is the Hollywood hero. Mm-hmm. He has played all... In he Bounty- has played the Hollywood hero. Yeah, in Bounty Law, he was the hero. Yeah, right? yeah, but yeah. now he's been, he's got stuck playing the villain. Yeah, in, yeah. Well, not even the villain, like the one who gets destroyed. The one who gets beaten up. The hood. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got the maiden, who is Sharon Tate. And th- those three things we do have, but it doesn't follow the traditional... Um, that kind of traditional structure of a fairy tale. But there's never been anything traditional about Quentin Tarantino. True. Did you feel you were watching two movies? Yes, absolutely. Like when um, when Cliff, Brad Pitt, when he goes into, is it the, the Spam or something? What's it called? <laughs> the ranch. Oh, the spa, Span Ranch. Span Ranch, yeah. yeah. When he goes into that ranch and it's all dusty and uh, quiet and there's... Um, teenage girls kind of lying the family the, the family. family yeah that suddenly has a real undercurrent of menace and it feels real it yes. feels pr- like lena dunham comes out and she's not wearing a stitch of makeup that's scary um, <laughs> <laughs> and she is actually great in it like she's barely in it but she is creepy as fuck yeah um, she's got a, like a a young annie wilkes to her mm, yeah definitely and then From uh, misery is that that it was Dakota Fanning, wasn't it, as the redhead? Oh, probably. They get they're everywhere. Those bloody Fannings. She was really great because she had nothing to work with, really, apart from <laughs> be menacing. Oh, she was squeaky. I thought Har- squeaky. Harley Quinn Smith was going to be in it more. I was quite disappointed. I she didn't wasn't. even notice her. Uh, you know, when they're coming over the hill, over the, the road, like la 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 uh, la la. Yeah, yeah. Like, she was part of that group where they were like rolling around in the bin and shit. Oh. I would imagine in the longer cut, she's going to get more. Yeah, well, because there's shots in the trailer that aren't in the film. Yes. Um, and there's going to be the four-hour version and on And Tim Netflix. Roth is not in the film, and he was in, oh, yeah. he's in the film somewhere. Um, but ben, I know what you mean. Yeah. That felt, when he was going to see Bruce Dern, it, George, it, mm. it felt like a, a horror film. Yeah. But a conventional horror film. But lacking any kind of... Oh, horror film payoff. He's yeah, just, it was... Oh. She was telling the truth. He's just asleep. Yeah, he's blind. Okay, fine. He's asleep. Boring. She'd been fucking his brains out. Yeah, and then, you know, because it's Bruce Dern and he's brilliant, you have to have quite a long, drawn-out scene where he's just like, what? Yeah. What? Eh? And, uh-huh. if, and it feels not too dissimilar towards the end of um, Kill Bill Volume 2 when we have this scene with Michael Parks. Yes. The Mexico Bill. Yeah. For no reason at all that I he loves watching Michael someone. Parks. And I love watching yeah. Michael Parks, but not if it's going to slow the bloody narrative down. I think... Maybe this is a thing that, you know, people always say, kill your darlings. And Tarantino has never killed his darlings. He's never, never had to. Well, I mean... Mm, Maybe Kill Bill Volume 1, because that was so tight and so... Very tight. Focused. But then again, anything from Kill Bill Volume 1 that he cut out, he could probably put into Kill Bill Volume mm. 2. And in fact, weirdly, there's a, there's a video of him reading the script to Robert Rodriguez online somewhere. Which script? Uh, Kill Bill. Right. Like the first draft of Kill Bill before... He'd shot it before they'd made the decision to turn it into two films. So the original version of Kill Bill opened with Uma Thurman, or The Bride, in the car, talking to the camera, saying, I've been done wrong, this, that, and the other, I'm going to kill Bill. Mm. Which, of course, opens 
volume two. Mm. So if it doesn't work in volume one, he'll just cut out and put it into volume two. Ah. But clearly he has cut things out of the film. Yes. What did I say? There's a shot of Charles Manson smiling by the van and that's not in the film. Is it? Is it? Is it not in the film? I, I remember him getting out that, that sort of, yeah. uh, is it a Twinkies van? Yeah, it's a Twinkies mm. van. I don't think it was in the film though. Maybe so, it's just so, that's so ingrained from the okay. trailer. But weirdly, I, it's ingrained not because it's a great visual. I thought it was Colin Firth. <laughs> Who looks like Colin it? Firth? Who actually was it? Uh, the guy that's playing Charles Manson in Mindhunter season two. Oh, uh, so he's kind of cornered the market on... He's got the Charlie Manson yeah. markets cornered, yeah. Mm, lucky him. Although he's obviously wearing a lot of prosthetics. Uh, yeah, a little. Like, and he doesn't really... Like, he looked like him, but he looked like a proper evil witch version of Charles Manson. It's a fairy tale. Actually, this is one thing that I was going to... I wanted to talk about. When Rick is playing the villain in the Western that we watch getting made on... Was it Paramount lot or... Uh, yeah. lot. Uh, Universal I think Universal lot when Rick's playing the villain in, in that film he has the Charles Manson hair and the Charles Manson-esque kind of facial moustaches yeah like he looks a lot like Charles Manson yeah to such a degree that when I saw the promo material you know what a year ago I was like wait a minute is Leo actually playing Charles Manson in the film but like is that like a weird metatextual thing that's going on where even though Charles Manson isn't in the film, he's yeah. being channeled somehow. Well, the whole film is is really about the end of the so-called golden age of cinema and American culture. The Manson murders happened. Yeah. The beautiful, blonde, virginal, even though she was eight months pregnant, virginal, sweet, uh, cherished American sweetheart. Yeah is slaughtered yeah. along with three others, but they never get mentioned. Yeah, no, they don't. Even well, I didn't realise until I started reading up that there were, th- there were four of them murdered that night. Yeah. Not just well, Sharon Tate. Which um, wasn't her friend, the one played by Emil Hirsch. Was he not killed as well? I think he was killed and also yeah. Wojtek. So he Polish is actually guy. in it. He's quite a, a relatively major role in it. Yeah. But the whole point is that this end of this golden era has come to an end. Mm. And then the 70s start and it's all a big downer and it's all gritty. Yeah. So the spectre of what is looming and what is going to happen is constantly over this film. So it mm. it doesn't surprise me that you picked up on Charles Manson vibes in Leo's attire. Yeah. Because Leo represents the old. Yeah. He represents what is being murdered by the the new counterculture. But if he's if he's portraying almost a version of Manson What's the subtext? The, what's the what's the meaning behind it? Like, is are we being told that Charles Manson, this villain, is a performance, or you know, it's not it's not authentic, it's not real, or is it just kind of just a, a silly? Well, that's a that's a that's a subjective thing that mm. other people can can put on to mm. these these murderers, these serial killers. Mm. The media always does that. Yeah. They're never portrayed as Well, he's as not a just, serial killer. He just encouraged. No, but he was a cult leader and he was clearly... Yeah. Clearly he was a, a charismatic figure uh-huh. in that he was able to amass such a large family, in quotation marks, and then cajole them into committing murder for him. He never touched anyone, did he? He never killed anyone. But he was complicit know. in the murders. That's the thing that I think is maybe... Um, I'm not going to presume to say it's missing from the film, but it's something that I was surprised wasn't played up is the fact that Charles Manson 
was a singer. He wanted to be famous. He yeah. was he was had this drive where he thought he felt that his destiny was to be this famous adored figure like the Beatles and that never happened for him. And so that it kind of almost weirdly it happened in a way. Well, when he, he had his family. Leader. Right. Yeah. So that's how he became famous. Uh-huh. That's how he got that adoration when he couldn't when he couldn't gain it through his talent as a musician. He found it by becoming this cult figure. But he is he very much represents the dark side of Hollywood, the bad when when fame goes bad or when if you're only chasing fame, this is what's going to happen to you. And I'm just really surprised that a film about Hollywood and about heroes and um, the glamour and the glitz and the beauty of that 60s period of Hollywood. I'm just surprised that there wasn't more of a juxtaposition juxtaposition between the supposed good guy, Rick Dalton, and the evil bad guy, Charles Manson. Maybe there is in the the longer cut. Maybe. But scaling it down to just only two hours and 43 minutes means that he has to weight it completely in Leo and Brad's favour. I was surprised that Sharon Tate was barely in it. She barely gets any lines. It's like... I reject your thesis. I know. (laughs) He doesn't give her a voice in this film. She's not a character. She's not a character. She floats around. Like this angel, this ethereal angel who's just floating around LA smiling and and being beautiful. Um, And she's not a person in the film. She doesn't feel like a real person. She doesn't even get to talk about her own history. Somebody else talks about it for her, and that's Steve McQueen. Yes. He fills the audience in on her romantic past with Joe and Roman Polanski. Um, So she doesn't even get to talk about that. Captain Exposition. Yeah. It's, it's very strange. And for a film that is purporting to be a love letter to Sharon Tate, um, it's very odd that she doesn't get to be any more than, um, uh, you know, just a side character. A side character who is just has an image. No, yeah. A complete, a, a walking photograph yeah. to Oogle. Yeah. Did you think that he was going to actually do a revisionist history? No, ah. no, I thought I was going to see The Murder of Sharon Tate. Ah, interesting. And I think the film would have worked better with The Murder of Sharon Tate. Oh, really? Well, look at it this way. A, it would have tied the two threads together because he's living next door to her. Their lives would, would cross over. The, I just felt at, at the end, it should have been more of a, a coming together. Maybe he could have been killed at the same time as Sharon Tate. But if Quentin Tarantino loves this period and in our culture, in popular culture, Sharon Tate's murder represents the end of the so-called golden age. If she lives, then the grittiness in 70s cinema doesn't happen. Mm. And if the grittiness in 1970s cinema doesn't happen, then Quentin Tarantino doesn't happen. So has he sacrificed himself (laughs) in order to save Sharon Tate, a character who he gives barely any attention to in the film yeah i don't know because that's the thing that was such a huge um controversy before the film had even come out was or you know in 2017 when tarantino announced he was making a film that was partly based on the manson murders yeah that was the big controversy was are we going to have to watch sharon tate getting butchered on screen Mm -hmm. and what does that mean and is tarantino really the right person to do that and yeah i don't i don't really know what the answer is because all i know is that 
the the ending that we have is incredibly sweet and is it is kind of a filmmaker trying you know showing his love for that period and saying this was wrong and as a filmmaker i can make it right in my own way mm-hmm. so there is that kind of thing going on there is also the thing where tarantino has such an ego that he thinks he can kind of fix the past or do whatever he wants you know mm-hmm. when he with django he was talking about how he wanted to gift black audiences a folk hero they could believe in yes but it wasn't his place to do that and so it, there's a similar thing going on with sharon tate where he wants to rescue her he couldn't rescue the real sharon tate so he is going to rescue her on screen uh, avatar i guess and if anyone um, should be given a film where sharon tate is saved mm. strangely i think it should be roman polanski Oh, interesting. Yeah. And that was was another very odd thing that I felt was slightly poor taste was when Steve McQueen was talking about, there was this joke where he talked about how Sharon seemed to really like dating men who looked like 12-year-old boys. (laughs) It was a bit like, um, okay, that... Yeah, but you do know that his husband is then kind of accused of having sex with a 13-year-old. Not accused. He admitted it. Did he? Yeah, he, he... Statutory, wow. statutory raped a 13 year old in 1978 right so nine years after the murder yeah um he was arrested mm. he was charged he was um held without bail mm. and part of a plea deal that he did with the state roman polanski there was four other charges dropped hmm. part of the deal was that um roman polanski would be released um, under you know time served right so he was going to be released but obviously it was going to be a conviction then roman polanski's lawyers got word that the judge was actually going to ignore the plea deal and sentence roman polanski to 50 years in prison wow that's when roman polanski fled and stayed a fugitive until about 2013 huh how do you know so much about this <laughs> I went down a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole because <laughs> I, I, I was trying to find a copy of um, Polanski's autobiography from the mid 80s. Okay. But I couldn't find it. It's out oh. of print. It's called Roman by Polanski, which I think is a genius title because everyone refers to him as Polanski. Polanski being this notorious film director who fucks a 13 year old, the guy that made Chinatown, and then Roman is just. The neighbour who just so happens to be yeah. a human guy. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that just makes that joke in even poorer taste because yeah. you can't, as much as you're trying to revere Sharon Tate, I'm sorry, you can't say that she's now sleeping with men who look like 12-year-olds if her husband actually is a paedophile. Yeah. So you just can't do that. The thing that I, the thing is, I don't want to be like Mr. Toot his own horn, but because I knew that Tarantino is a reviser of history. The We've earlier, seen it in... Seen it in Glorious Bastards, Bastards, Django Unchained. Django Unchained. Um, so when my friend, well, I was talking to my friend about the film Once Upon a Time before I'd seen it, and I said, do you want to come watching it with me? And she said, no, I don't, because I don't want to see Sharon Tate get butchered on film. And I was like, he's not going to butcher her, he's going to save her. Oh, I, you knew before? I just, oh, you just assumed? I just knew, because that's the only way that he would have done this, is mm. if he could actually save Sharon Tate. And so watching the film kind of feeling pretty safe in the knowledge about that i was just a bit like that's why i felt like even less attachment to what was happening because i was just like i know that he's going to save her and that's lovely and fine but you're just not doing anything with her 
Yeah. You know, maybe that is, I don't really know much about her final day, but maybe that is what she did do on her final day. She probably got up, had a wee. Went to the She cinema. probably had um, eggs benedict yeah. on dry bagel. <laughs> maybe a glass of orange juice. Sat down, read the script, got murdered. Yeah. She got murdered. Well, she had, they had a party that evening, like in the film. Mm. Um, but if you are going to ramp up the tension that someone is going to get killed, mm. someone that you think is going to get killed because this seems to be based on truth, yeah. then you have that character come into the film for more than a, a giggly um, hotel session. Mm. And I can't really remember much whenever she's in the film. The she only meets bit Charlie, really, she goes to the cinema. Yeah, the only bit that really stands out is her in the cinema enjoying the fact that people are enjoying watching her film. And that's yeah. lovely and it's yeah. really sweet. She doesn't, doesn't really show much about her other than that she enjoys people enjoying her film. No, and I mean, when, when the... Um, when Tex, who's hot, and the hippies turn up in that shitty old car, mm-hmm. I, I, I genuinely thought they were going to go for um, Brad. Yeah. I genuinely thought they were going there for Brad. Mm. I didn't realise they were going there in the context of this story for Sharon. Yeah. Because when the violence happened, when Brad beats the shit out of all of them, yeah. I thought, oh, this is when the violence starts they'll probably kill Brad and then they'll go next door and kill Sharon. Mm. And then that didn't happen. No, it, it was clear that he was, Tarantino was kind of exercising Hollywood's demons. He was yeah. um, fixing inverted commas what happened. But again, it's the same thing where, yes, I'm, I know that these people are in the reality murderers, but seeing them horrifically butchered on screen mm-hmm. is... That whole argument, again, about violence begetting violence. Does violence fix violence? These people were met hugely mentally disturbed, exploited, messed up people. I don't particularly want to see them get murdered either. But they raise that point in the film. They say, oh, yes, they do. Yeah. These are the people that made us violent. Let's go be violent. So is that Quentin Tarantino finally yeah. realising that, yes, his films might instill in other people a, um, an apathy towards violence? Mm. An acceptance of that. I mean, I don't particularly think that watching Kill Bill is going to make someone pick up a samurai sword and go kill people down the local Sainsbury's. No. Is that line from Scream, which actually I thought about when I was watching that scene at the end of uh, Once Upon a Time, when Billy, who is the killer... Sorry, everyone. It's, that's a really old <laughs> film. Um, when he says... Spoilers. Movies don't create psychos. Movies just make psychos more creative. Yes. That's the line. That is what... That's the truth, I think. Mm. Is uh, but then you can go into even deep in, into more depth. You can tell I've been watching Mindhunter, um, <laughs> which is what does create psychos? Is it a natural state or is it a nurture thing? Where you know, is it humiliation at, in, as a child? What creates a psycho? So it's all very, very complicated, and movies can't possibly do it justice. But no, I don't think that just because you watch Kill Bill, you're going to pick up a, a, a mm. katana and go and kill people. Are any of the characters sympathetic? I don't think they are. I think you can understand Rick. But again, there's no progression. They start out as... Um, actually, I mean, the only, the only time that maybe you feel a slight bit of sympathy or that sympathetic feeling is when Cliff drops Rick off at his Hill, Hollywood Hills mansion and goes back to his trailer to yeah. be with his dog. Reminded me of um, um, Lethal Weapon. 
Oh, yeah. He lives in the trailer with a dog. Yeah, he does. Mm. Um, but that, you don't know if he's chosen to live that way. Like, you assume he's not getting paid as much as Rick is, but um, maybe that's just the way he enjoys living. Like that nomad lifestyle. Yeah. and But then also, any sympathy you have for him is immediately removed because you find out that he possibly killed his wife. <laughs> Admittedly, she was very <laughs> annoying, but that doesn't mean you murder them. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but you know my case is still open and I can't yeah. talk about it <laughs> I have not murdered my wife I don't, <laughs> I don't have, have a wife because I murdered them anyway <laughs> who, I don't who think did, I don't think yeah. anyone's there sympathetic um, Rick is not a, even a buffoon blind George is sympathetic no guy's a miserable cunt yeah. uh, Rick is a buffoon he's a clown he's selfish selfish in that way that you know we've had contact with um you know, very successful people surrounded by agents or yeah. whatever, you in the movie world, me in the music world, and I have no sympathy for any of those plonkers because <laughs> because they just... Plonkers, they, they, they are. They bring that behaviour on themselves. And, yeah. you know, you might have yes people all, all around you, but you don't start off that way. You know that... We all know the difference between what is good behaviour and what is bad behaviour, and they've made that choice to be as selfish as they can to get as far as they can. So no, I don't have sympathy for um, Leo's character. I, I don't know if I have sympathy for Brad's character, but I warmed to him more than I did Leo. Yeah, because he's not spoiled living in a, in a mansion in Hollywood Hills. No, but... he seems very down to earth. And, yeah. and just by the by, he's 55, Brad Pitt. And he looked good. No 55-year-old has any right to have that body. You know I'm what? 36. I'm sat here eating bloody Maltesers. <laughs> I deserve that body. When he took his top off on that rooftop, the the girl in front of me was sat Did forward. Did you feel it all wet on your feet? Yeah, no. She, <laughs> she, she wet sat forward in her chair. And you know that those chairs, sometimes they rock back in some of the cinemas. Yes. Her chair went... And like rocked forward. <laughs> And she like shot a look at her friend. And I was like, yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> I am with you. <laughs> um, that scene, actually, when he took that, when he took his top off and he has that flashback. Stu- a, pointless. Stupid. But also, it's the only time in the film that it goes non-linear. Yeah. Well, there's moments when he's got the acid cigarette and it goes back to, what's this? Oh, an acid cigarette. And that's it. Yeah. But that's not, that's not. I mean, yeah, that's a flashback, but it's not non-linear in the traditional Quentin Tarantino sense. True. I feel like he's moved away from that progressively. There's only one flashback in Hateful Eight. Yeah. Uh, Inglorious Bastards jumps all over the place. Well, does it actually? No, I don't think it does. It just jumps location, but it doesn't jump time. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So he's really moving away from that non-linear thing. Mm. So what is he talking about when he talks about this film being like Pulp Fiction? Oh, it's not at all like Pulp Fiction. I don't understand that. Is that just a marketing ploy to get people to go and see it? I mean, it's set over three days. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, I just really wanted to love this film because I was so excited. And it was really exciting to see Tarantino do Hollywood, kind mm. of return home to roost, to see Hollywood through his eyes. And... There was all this talk about how he'd recreated the 60s street, um, which you just... With, with minimal CGI. With minimal, yeah, right. So they actually created the shop fronts and yeah, all yeah. that stuff. But you barely see it because you're in a car or you're just outside the car and you don't actually see characters walking down the street you know, in this environment. Yeah. 
um, which is a shame. Do you like the title? Um, I actually don't mind it. I know that you've said before that you hate films called Once Upon a Time. I think it's dead. I just think, just stop. Yeah. It's like when Avengers Endgame came out or the name was announced, I just, I can't bear things called like Endgame or Mm. Redemption because Mm. once they might have had a, a grandiose epicness to them, but now they just sound like a straight to DVD sequel. Yeah. Home Alone, Requiem. <laughs> Brilliant. Is Rick Quentin Tarantino? Oh, that's interesting. No, because Rick is has a different discipline and doesn't have that same nerd thing about movies. Like Tarantino is a walking film nerd brain on legs like he just lives for the movies and rick you never get the sense that rick loves acting you never get the sense that he loves tv and movies he's just in them maybe he did love them at one point yeah he loves the idea that the little kid thinks he's a really good actor like that for him yes. is that's the most I, validating thing right for him. he feels completely validated but you don't know why he's like that mm. like there, there's no character development there's no character depth in any of this um i don't didn't understand really who the characters were. I felt like I liked Cliff because he was actually quite smart and he was a bit of a survivor. You felt mm. like he was a survivor. But Rick, I don't think he was Tarantino either. He was just a jobbing actor who wanted to be more than he actually was. I see on a different level. Quentin Tarantino has always said, I'm going to make 10 movies and I'm going to quit because he thinks directors get weak and, and floppy in their old age. Which you might agree with. I I think I do agree with. Mm -hmm. For some. I mean, Kubrick never made a bad film. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, I can't imagine ever Mm. making a bad film. Spielberg has not been Spielberg for a very long time. Ridley Scott has has not been Ridley Scott for longer than he was Ridley Scott. Yeah. Scorsese. Well, that's to be seen. Yeah. That's to be seen. Because The Irishman looks like a return to form. But the thing about Quentin Tarantino is, this is his ninth film. So the next one potentially will be his last. And he keeps going on and about it. And he keeps it. going on about it. But he seems to be at a crossroads mm. where he's entering the autumn of his career. So does he stick to his word? Does he go down the left path and stick to his word and quit after film number 10? Or does he go right and carry on? Mm. Does he find something new to do or does he get rejuvenated and this is where rick is rick even though he's clearly in his 40s not even much past 40 he is in what is considered the autumn of his career as a hero on screen Mm. something that steve mcqueen went through george papard robert redford paul newman yeah all those hollywood greats Tony Curtis, Tony Curtis, they all went through this. Yeah. What's, and it's like seemed to come, and, and seemed to come out at the other side, yeah. reinventing themselves. But it could have easily gone the other way. So Rick is obviously trying to rebrand himself to use 2019 <laughs> influencer parlance. Hashtag rebrand. Is Quentin Tarantino, is this on his mind that he's about to leave behind the thing that he wanted most and has been at the top of his game, and he is has been at the top of his game for 30 years almost. Mm. He's about to leave it behind. That must be incredibly scary to him. So I see a lot of that in Rick's dilemma. But that's only if he holds himself to his own word. Like, there's no reason for him not to continue, apart from 
his own philosophy on directors. So, which could be a self either it, it either is coming true at um, whether he wants it to or not, mm. or it's coming true because it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Because well, yeah. the Hateful Eight wasn't well, super not. great. That was not good. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is definitely not up there. It's a three star film. Yeah. It's a three star film made by a five star director. Like, no one would really care if this wasn't Tarantino. 100%. Like, I hadn't thought about that, but yes, 100%. Was, when I was watching this film, I was like, who does this remind me? Who does this actually remind me of? It doesn't make me think of Tarantino. It makes me think of, said with love, David O. Russell, who makes good films. He made Silver Linings Playbook. He made Three Kings. He made American Hustle. He made Joy. All very fine films, but they're not big, huge films massive hitters they're just kind of good. decent they're just good films and once upon a time in hollywood is a good film but nobody would be raving about it quite this much if it wasn't, if it wasn't tarantino it, was it feels like david o russell which is fine and that's perfectly fine i didn't even think it felt like david o russell oh, really? i just knew it didn't feel like quentin tarantino no i had a conversation with someone online an actor so of course he thought he was right okay yes <laughs> where he said um actually let me grab it it's on it's on the Instagram. It's on the internet. I said, it doesn't feel like Quentin Tarantino. And he said, it does. The drawn out conversations, the incredibly over the top violence and the fight scenes, the building of tension by focusing on small talk. <laughs> and I said, what? None of those things are really in it in any great way. Well, yeah. Like, well, I just said, tonally, it's not hip and gritty like his early work. And it's not cartoonish like his post six year hiatus. It just did not feel like a Quentin Tarantino yeah. film. He said, how is it not cartoonish? Did you miss the flamethrower? <laughs> and I said, well, the flamethrower didn't feel cartoony in the way that Django and Bastards was. Yeah. So I'm not... It I'm, felt I'm, goofy, is what it felt. At times, it jumped from a goofiness to yeah. a very dry unconventional Quentin Tarantino film. Like there were splashes of maybe he's going to go off in his brand direction. But yeah. if he's not doing, if Quentin Tarantino is not doing Quentin Tarantino, who is he doing? Mm. I don't know who he was doing, but it just didn't feel like a Quentin Tarantino film. Oh, do you know who was sitting in the back seat of that car as they were waiting to go in? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> it's, um, uh, I can't remember her name, Thingy Hawk. It's yeah. Uma's daughter. Maya Hawk. Yeah, she was in Stranger Things 3. Yeah, she's great. I yeah. really love her. I wish she was in it more. I know. It's so, and it, that makes me think that she, she's, him she's and great. Um, Uma are talking again, which I know they are. Yeah, well, he know, obviously knows Maya because he was living with her when he was writing oh, Kill Bill. yeah. Yeah, so but they lived in such a big house, if remember we said, that they probably <laughs> that didn't big even see each other. mansion. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Hello. Come and read your lines for the bride. Bride, 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 bride. <laughs> Bring eggs, 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 eggs. <laughs> You're going to kill Bill. Bill, Bill. Beep, 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 beep. Are we going to do some QT grammar? Let's do QT grammar. Let's do it. Right. So many feet in this film. I only saw like a couple of girls' feet. There were so many, and they weren't very nice feet. And they were well, no, no, if you're walking around on the dusty fucking floor, then all pushed up. I'd be like, get your feet I know. off of my dashboard. When Pussycat had her, her soles of her feet squashed against the windscreen. Disgusting. It was so disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Returning players. Leonardo, second right. time. Brad, second time. Michael Madsen, basically Barely playing Buck. His car. <laughs> His car, yeah. yeah. Same car that he was using in, in Reservoir Dogs. 
Yes. It's the car that he put the policeman yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not just the same model, the exact same car. Yeah, it's same Michael car. Madsen's car. Yeah. But he was pay- basically playing Buck. Yes, he was. Um, Complete with not really... Not Buck, Bud. Really Bud. slow... Well, that's... Delivery. Michael Madsen, that's I'm just slow. trying to think about... That's the way he talks. It's like Species to... How the stroke. <laughs> and he has to think about... He didn't have a stroke. No, it's just like... <laughs> He's had a stroke and he has to think about... It's painful. Stop it. It really makes me uncomfortable. Every word. But only in three word blocks. Oh, God. We deserve what we're going to get. <laughs> um, Zoe Bell playing against type. She was acting. I know. Zoe. <laughs> she thought she'd act in because this one. Because weirdly, yeah. if... Zoe Bell was going to act like Zoe Bell. She should have played Sharon fucking Tate. Oh, yeah. Smiley, smiley. Smiley, smiley. Yeah. Smiley, smiley. Carol, smiley. <laughs> when she um, came on, I was like, whoa, Zoe's angry. <laughs> Zoe's acting. Zoe's <laughs> acting. <laughs> Kurt Russell. Kurt, with a bit of... But looking, beginning to look his age. Well, did he have a bit of stuff on his face? No. He oh. like, I think he's... He's just being, He's looking on. a bit old. He's oh, pushing, okay. what, 60, yeah. uh, 70? You look great, Kurt. Uh, Bruce Dern. He's back. Yeah. Um, again, it, how old is Bruce Dern? He, is he what? <laughs> how old? Because in the last one, he was knows. sat down for the whole film, and in this one, he was lying down. Yeah. So what happens next? And then there was they a... dig him up to make him do his lines. <laughs> He'll still act in the exact same way. <laughs> Just his face pushing through the coffin. <laughs> Leave me alone, you fucker! <laughs> and Tim Roth, but he's not actually in the film. In the film. Oh yeah. Yeah. And oddly, Uma Thurman is in the film. Well, he's, her daughter is. Well, genetics. Yeah. She grew from inside of yeah, Uma, so yeah. bits of Uma are in the, are in the film. And Maya Hawke's voice is Uma Thurman's She's voice. She's got the same nose. It's hilarious. It's yeah. actually, it was actually quite touching having her in the film. It was kind of like, oh, Uma. It's BB. Your kid's here. Yeah. It's Bibi. It is. Yeah. Little Bibi. They should do Kill Bill 3 with Maya Hawk. As Bibi. Holy shit, that would be amazing. Yeah. It wouldn't be Kill Bill 3. No, it'll it? be like. Oh, volume 3. Kill Jill. Kill Jill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've, they've pissed yeah, someone else off. Well, I imagine it would be um, Uma and Bibi. Yes. Teaming up against um, Vivica Fox's daughter. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe some people from Cottonmouth's crew. And also at the same time, BB hates her mum because she killed her dad. So it's all very... Uh... This is another conversation I had with this actor. I called oh, yeah. the bride selfish, like I did on the pod. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was like, how could you call her selfish? Women can, women can be not selfish too. It's like, <laughs> I was like, where is this going? You've swallowed the Me Too pill. Uh... Um, obviously, violence. And that violence was... It was hilarious. Apart from when he was smashing the face in against the fireplace. Yes, that was right. horrible. So it began as being unbelievably violent. And it's yeah. not... I don't think it's just because there was no violence in the film up until that point. Uh-huh. I think it is just unbelievably gratuitous, gratuitously violent. <laughs> Can't yeah. even say the word. That's how violent <laughs> it is. I've had a dog tin smashing in my mouth. <laughs> but when he was... Smashing the girl's face on the picture frames and then the wall and then the fireplace and then the table and the table and the table and the table and the table. Then he brings it up and thinks, no, she's dead. She's gone. Flops her down on the floor. As I was laughing and because it was hilarious because, you know, movie violence is like comedy. There is a timing and a rhythm. Mm. If 
you get it right, it is very, very funny. Just look at those early Jackie Chan movies. Not not the shit that he did with Brett Ratner. Yeah. But those early Jackie Chan movies where it's all basically in one shot. story. Yeah. And the rhythm is created on set, not Mm. in the edit. It's very funny. But I became acutely aware that I was watching a man beating a woman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, oddly, is probably the bravest thing Quentin Tarantino did in that film, considering he had to leave Harvey Weinstein's company Mm -hmm. to go to Sony... And then the Me Too movement kicked off. Yeah. But, that you know, there's a line apparently between she's a woman, but yes, she's a murderer. Not yet. So, she hadn't murdered anyone. No, exactly. That's why it didn't make any sense. And that's why yeah. it's not okay to kind of revel in that because... It, because it's the heroic moment of the film. Yeah, and it doesn't feel heroic in any way. It feels extremely problematic. Mm. But in, in the same way that all violence in Tarantino movies is. So Problematic, yes, but, you know, it... They were kids. Like the kids, no, because, the kid in Kill it, Bill is a, saved. There's a grey area in all his films. We've, yeah. we've, we've discussed it quite a lot. You know, you've got these grey characters. No one's ever, ever fully good. No one's ever fully bad. But at least in his other films, you can say, well, they might not be fully good and they might not be fully bad, but they have objectively done bad things. So the death mm. can often be justified or the death can often be over. The violence can often be overlooked because you look at it through the prism of oh well they are bad bad objectively people. Mm. This kid is just a kid who was part of a cult hasn't murdered anyone, yeah, and hasn't even murdered the person who they murdered in real life. Yeah, so what why they actually... do they get to be killed, or why does Quentin Tarantino get to make their death or her death that final smashing in the coffee table? Yeah, why does Quentin Tarantino get to make her death the heroic moment? For Brad Pitt's character. It's a similar thing to any film where the villain has to be killed, you know, vanquished mm. in order for good to triumph. Like in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's in commas self, well, I mean, it's self-defense, but it goes beyond self-defense into actual assault and, yes. and murder, you know? <laughs> yes. it's, it's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend myself, but I'm also going to kill you. Yeah. So... Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, you could talk, you could, no, I'm not going to go into police brutality, but it is also like, why are so many people being shot dead by the police when they could actually be, be uh, restrained? Mm. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing where in America it seems to have to be extreme. It has to be an extreme reaction. And that's what I was going to bring up. Yeah. The hippies. So he wasn't arrested, Brad Pitt's character. Cliff wasn't arrested. No. He was put in the ambulance like, you're a hero, well yeah, done. Yeah. Do you need a cup of tea, whatever? Let me get you a sandwich or whatever. No sign of the bodies being taken out or any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And and Rick's free to just go and have a party with Sharon Tate. It's all fine. Yeah. But it's a fairy tale. It's fine. Real life people. Yeah. Bruce yeah. Lee, Charles Manson, barely. Sharon Tate, just about. Roman Polanski. Ooh, I've got one. There's, the main ones. there's a new fake brand. Red apples. Wolf's teeth. What's that? I didn't see that. The dog food, Wolf's teeth. Oh, okay. Which came in well, rat flavour and raccoon oh, flavour. Yes. <laughs> but it's only going to be a grammar if you put it in the next one. Oh, yeah. No monologues. No one monologued at length. But there is narration. Yes, and it was Kurt Russell, wasn't it? Very weird narration. Yeah, out of nowhere. Like, yeah. why is Kurt Russell suddenly why? narrating the story to us? Is that like a 60s tr- like trope? No, I think it's lazy. <laughs> yes, at least felt, in The Hateful Eight, when he, Quentin Tarantino, starts narrating the film, that I can we buy that. And that to our story. Well, that, that works perfectly because he's the fucking writer. Yeah. Why didn't he do it again? Yeah. He's writing this this revised story, this revised history. Why isn't Sharon Tate narrating it? Why isn't Sharon Tate 
narrating it. Surely she's the, it's, if it's supposedly her story and it's a love letter to Sharon, why isn't Sharon narrating it and it's all from her perspective? Not, I mean, obviously she can talk about what Rick's doing. Yeah. But the narration is her take on what's happening. That would have been, that would have been real. that would have been brilliant if she had, from the start, narrated it. Yeah. Then you would think it's a bit of a Desperate Housewives Mary Alice right. thing. exactly. And then boom, at the end, she's not dead and that's why she's narrating it. Yeah. Because he's now told her his stories and so she can t- talk about them with authority. He's fucking lost it. Tarantino, can you just get in touch with me? I'm a really good editor. He's fucking lost it. <laughs> He's got nobody... This is the thing that people tell writers is to find another writer who is on the similar level in terms of their career and their writing ability. Well, that's not you then. <laughs> I know. Well, it might be. He needs to... But he doesn't have anybody, does he? I don't know. Well, he has Robert Rodriguez, but... Robert Rodriguez hasn't been Robert Rodriguez no, since Planet Terror. Exactly. Tarantino needs to find somebody who can, he can actually objectively have a look at his work. And mm. I mean, he's only got one left, supposedly. So One film. Yeah. He wants to move on to theatre, book writing, TV, like novels, and also film criticism, TV, mm. possibly Star Trek. I mean, he's not going to be uh, just sitting by the pool drink, drinking whiskey. Drinking whiskey sour. Yeah, exactly. So that was Once Upon a Time in Ellipsis. Hollywood. Hollywood. Ho- Hollywood. Hollywood. Whenever I hear just Hollywood, I think of that kid in uh, Hocus Pocus. We've run out of films. Oh. We've run out of films. This is his, All right. so his in, last film. Yeah. So wait, how long? When was Hateful Eight out? Three, four years ago? Four 2000, years ago. 2015. 15, yeah. So we've got four years now. No, I think we've got three <laughs> years because this was, I think this was delayed a bit because of the switch from one studio to another. We'll be back next week. We're going to do a wrap up episode. Yeah, we are. So make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and TuneIn Radio. We're oh, also on that, some sort of social media thing. We're on that Twitter thing. That Twitter. Yeah, at Tornstubs Pod. Uh, Rob's been making lots of friends on Twitter he's been, been making a few enemies <laughs> uh, if you feel like having a go at that then please give us a follow give us a tweet let us know what you thought of our Quentin Tarantino season we're off to 10050 Celio Drive what are we going to do there until next time I remain Robert Gershenson I'm Joshua Winning cut Come on, you bring it.